Hi, my name is Jason Barcham. I'm an associate partner with Servian New Zealand. Welcome to the Technology Whisperers, a technology and innovation podcast brought to you by Servian with your hosts Alistair Ross and Sean Muller. Join us as we demystify the latest emerging innovative technologies for businesses of all shapes and sizes, sharing our thoughts on how you can improve your current technologies, practices and processes to transform your business. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and good night. Wherever you are in the world, this is the Technology Whisperers with Sean G. Muller. Good day, Sean. Good day, Alistair. How are you today? I'm fine. And me, of course, Alistair Ross. Your two hosts here, the, the follically challenged wonders, as always. <laughs> on, on our binary episode, we are all on. This is episode 11 of the Technology Whisperers. So what's been happening with you? Sean. Oh, you know, work is going crazy. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, the podcast has been hugely successful. We got lots of people reaching out to us, both interested in giving us topics. The list of topics we have is is, is quite long, and we expect to have some new guest hosts or some new guests joining us in the uh, in the coming weeks and months. So if, keep listening. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't see my uh, face, but I was fist punching the air there when you were telling us all that. So that, that's really awesome news. I, I I love to hear that. I love to hear and see how just engaged our listeners have become with the podcast. I'm really enjoying the interactive nature of it. So we've got we've got people reaching out to us on LinkedIn and um, and other methods as well. So if you, of course, I think I said this the last time when we were on the podcast, if you want to get involved with the podcast, if you've got suggestions, feedback, anything of that ilk, then please do get in touch. And I'll give you all of those methods of getting in touch with either Sean or myself at the end of the podcast. Now, um, I have been off. Uh, I've been off for the last couple of podcasts. And uh, my apologies for that. I was with the dreaded Lurgy. I had the COVID. And uh, both of us, I think both of us now have had it. And um, it's, right. hit us, it's hit us both quite hard. So yes. it's not this two to three day thing like everybody else seems to get. It seemed to seem to really hit us quite hard, which is um, what? just rubbish. I don't think we're... I don't think we're the spring chickens that, that uh, some other people are, Alistair. You and I, I think you and I have been around the block quite a few times, and I think that that caught up with us. But yes, we I, had I a couple so. really good ep- We had a couple really good episodes, and and uh, we brought on a couple of really awesome guests. And in fact, we've now had Amanda on twice to talk about yeah. women in technology and and women returning, you know, people returning to technology after taking breaks. And both of those both of those episodes actually. I've gotten really good numbers of people listening to them and really good reviews coming back to us. That is awesome. Really, really cool to hear. All right. Well, without further ado, I think we better move on and uh, introduce today's podcast. So as you may have known by listening to one of the earlier podcasts, I can't remember which number it was, maybe something like two or three. It was, it was one of the earlier podcasts that we did. We talked generally about security. This podcast today is on the topic of zero trust security. And I wanted to just uh, roll through what zero trust is. You may have heard of it. And I think if I was in the position of uh, CISO, CEO, CTO, that sort of person, 
I would be uh, interested to know what zero trust security is all about because it is becoming very important. And I would say, so it's worth, it's definitely worthwhile tuning in if you don't know what zero trust is. And I think it's really worthwhile starting to think about adopt it if you're not already adopting it in your organization. So today's agenda, I'm going to go run through what zero trust security is and why you should care. Uh, zero trust is not a buzzword. I will talk about that and uh, why to and, and how you how you can adopt the zero trust security model. And then, Sean, you've got a little bit about all of the bits and bobs that kind of uh, talk to the technology, I guess. So I'll talk more abstracted, more high level, less less tech, and then you've got more on the actual technologies which sit in the background of all of this. So in the technology future, micro segmentation. Service software-defined networking, software-defined WANs, containerization, usage-based modeling of data access, all of that great stuff. So really, I think it's a, 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 a real game of two halves uh, we have lined up for you today. Some facts, first of all, and this is, why you this is part of why you should care. Um, so fact number one, uh, and this is, this is according to a 2018 study, a cost of data breach study, the average cost of a data breach is 3.86 million US dollars with an average cost per lost record or stolen record of $148. So that's the Annabelle Graham IT governance audit 2018. And of course, that doesn't put into respect the cost of your reputational damage. That could be much wider. And it only takes a few headlines back to think about some very large organizations in New Zealand have been affected by ransomware, by malware, and by all sorts of other wares in the last very recent history. So we have, we have an audit-based compliance aspect in the Privacy Act as well. The Privacy Act was, of course, updated in 2020 here in New Zealand, and there's a lot more that you have responsibility as an organization to report data breaches and data loss as well to the, the commission, to the, uh, to the government. And there are fines associated with that as well, of course. So it's really important that you do whatever you can do to protect your organization, not just for well, the for the good of your organization, but for your financial and reputational respects as well. John. And yeah, well, and, and Alistair, I think it's I think it's worthwhile us noting that analysis of the of these data breaches, you highlighted the ransomware and and you know phishing attacks and things like that that we are seeing more and more and more. But the reality is is that most of these large data breaches are caused by people internal within the organization doing something they're not supposed to. Either they're doing it maliciously or they're doing it accidentally. But it's it's not a, in the old days. It was a bad actor sitting out on the internet or you know dialing into your company. Now it's somebody sitting inside, and this is where this idea of zero trust comes in is mm. that rather than just blocking the out the bad actors that are outside you're protecting the assets within the organization and i know you're going to cover that in a minute but i am, I, yeah. I just i wanted to i wanted to highlight this because um when a lot of times when executives hear data breach what they're thinking is a bad actor sitting outside but the reality is is that most of these surveys are now coming back and showing that it was actually somebody internal and if they had security controls inside the organization at the data level, at the access level into individual systems internally within the system, within the, the organization, they would have reduced these or even eliminated them. Absolutely. That, is, that, that dovetails 
very, very well into my next fact. So these are like pre-facts before I get into the meat of it. Uh, and so this fact is really important. So if, if you haven't updated your IT security policy, the likelihood of you still using standard usernames or passwords, or even slightly advanced from that, the single sign-on technology, bear in mind that they do not necessarily reveal that a user's details have been compromised or a device has been stolen. So when your security team or your network team or your SOC is looking through all the logs and so forth, if they see Bob logging in, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually Bob logging in. They'll just see it as Bob logging in. But Bob could have had his laptop stolen. He could have had some malware, ransomware, other software, some hacker on his system pretending to be Bob. And realistically, unless the activity looks a bit off, you're going to be none the wiser that 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 system has actually been compromised. So this is where all of this zero trust really comes in. So what is zero trust and why should you care? Now, um, zero trust is actually not that new a thing. It's just that it's being talked about an awful lot more these days. And zero trust, like Sean says, is, is something that's really, really become very important today because of the types of services that we consume and from where the entry point of the attacks are actually happening. They're happening within the network not outside. So if we think about the way that we secured our networks traditionally, and that's even going on to this very day, that a lot of the security products out there still kind of work on this model. They work on a model that I would call the castle and moat style. We trust everything inside our castle, everything inside our network, and everything after the moat or in the moat to be uh, to a lesser extent, i.e. the DMZ, that's untrusted. We say all that stuff on the internet, all the stuff out there outside of our castle, that's bad or it could potentially be bad. We better put up this big firewall and protect all of that and, sort of stuff. And, yeah. and generally there's one gate in and out, a, a choke point, and we do all of our security controls at that choke point. Mm. Yeah. And 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 that that is is problematic. And and yeah. So, so that model there, the castle and moat, as I call it, it was a decent model when all of our infrastructure was based on our own physical networks in our own server rooms. So really, if we think about the cloud, the cloud's been around for like properly for 15 years now. And, you know, when we were running our server rooms and all the rest, our little, little server rooms, maybe even we were co-locating to another data center by some other company, but effectively it was still like our own equipment, right? That was a was a reasonable model for those sorts of days but it hasn't really been a reasonable model since at least we went to the cloud but probably even further than that so zero trust... a little yeah probably a little before i, I yeah. as we as we began offering internet services and and people were building more and more internet connections and and offering more services i really think and and consuming more services on the internet. So as we opened it up to people internal our networks, accessing things that were out on the internet, like yeah. be, being able to go and buy stuff or, or browse websites. Really yeah, I kind of think about it as uh, the timeline of when zero trust really became very important would be around the time of the iPhone. 
right? It's when, yeah. when the iPhone yeah. started to become prevalent, right? So the iPhone came out in 2007 now. Yeah. So like yeah. you said at the beginning about how we are not as young, we're not as spring chickens as we are. I mean, I remember <laughs> when the iPhone yeah. came out, right? And yeah. it, it, is, it is most definitely something which is, not, uh, which is not new. And in fact, the terminology or the term zero trust or perimeter, perim, it's a lot harder to say, perimeter perimeterless uh, security model. The, the zero trust model was coined um, by a fellow Scotsman, and he was a professor in Stirling University. And I think it was it was the mid-90s, I think it was 1994. So if you're hearing buzzwords and you're hearing people in the security market at the moment talk about, whoa, whoa, this zero trust thing, blah, 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 and it, you know, making it all sound like it's this new fancy thing. It's actually not. It's been around since right. at least the mid-90s as, as being coined, and it's probably been around as a concept even before then. Well, so yeah, anyway. We, we, we actually tried to, I was going to say, even when we were on-premise, so back in the 90s and early 2000s, I was doing network engineering and network architecture, and we were trying to we did try several times to implement what was borderline zero trust networking. Essentially, we we placed firewalls at the gateway of every network segment. And, and the reality was, is that most of the applications that had been developed had been developed around this idea that they could talk to everything and do everything they wanted to, and they didn't work properly through a firewall. So in the probably the noughties, as you refer to them, the early 2000s, the noughties, we began backing off of the idea of a firewall at each gateway because the applications just wouldn't work properly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it was, it was a decent infrastructure model to have that castle and moat, the big firewall, big chunky firewall, looking at all of the traffic, even doing in, intrusion protection, intrusion detection systems yeah. uh, on top of that as well. That was fine for when we had the physical networks in our, in our own server rooms, running our own software where we had the physical CDs for. But as the time uh, went on um, and the software that we started to consume and the services that we started to consume were all on the internet, you know, all, all of the software really these days, if you think about half of the stuff at least that you use is all, is all SaaS based. And how many pieces of software that you use today is in a web browser? I don't, I don't, I don't actually have any software running apart from I use Adobe Premiere Pro, which is hooked up to the cloud anyway. But like that's the only old school kind of fat application that I I, I run, and that's for editing videos, which kind of has to run locally. But but if you think about it, all of the other software, and even that to some extent, all talks on the internet, all 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 has a call home at least. But even, oh yeah. But, you know, Microsoft Office 365, you think of it as like still this old word processor that kind of sits on your PC. But actually, it's it, um, by default, I think now, all of the words that you type in your keyboard automatically go back to Microsoft or Microsoft's partner services, and they get checked for validity, you know, the grammar checking and all that sort of stuff. So it's all actually online, and it's oh, crazy. Yeah. So, so you think about it, even the most benign sort of looking Well, well even the operating app, systems. Even yes. the operating systems, right? So Windows, if you're running Windows 11. And or 10, even up, 10. Even 10. And you boot up. The first thing it does is it tries to go out and check to see that you have a valid subscription to be running it and yep. to see if there are updates. It'll run with no network connection. But, I, I mean, phones, we've gotten so used to phones being constantly connected that we've just now accepted that any mm. device is constantly connected to the Internet. The danger with that is 
is that it's constantly connected to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that that ubiquity, you know, that the good thing about the ubiquity or the per pervasiveness of these internet connected devices, whether they be laptops, mobile phones, or even servers, is the instant on availability of information, yep. right? That's the convenience factor. That's why it's so useful. The telemetry that the devices provide and get back all the time. I mean, I, I know I can tell you right now where where the closest chip shop is to me and what yep. time it's open at and you know what um, what how many ratings out of five it's got and all the rest. I can tell you within split second that. But that is the it, it, it's a double edged sword, right? It has that, its that's right. good sides and its bad side. And the bad side is that having that always connected access to information has that um, downside where the uh, the data could be intercepted and be used against your network. So right. today we can't trust the stuff on our network at any point. We can't trust it internally. We can't obviously trust it externally or on our demilitarized zone, that kind of middle ground that place between the internet and our own network. So thus a perimeterless per, perimeterless network I, can't, I don't know why i can't say that it's like um purple um burglar what's it purple purple burglar alarm our scottish people can't say that apparently and i've just proven it again so anyway this is... you should say castle wallace castle wallace so a castle with no walls walls right yeah yes, wallace wallace's perfect. castle so the zero trust security model has started to become uh, a really important and often talked about concept in the in the realms of security and i think with our the whole point of this podcast as i always say every single week is that this is all about taking the taking all of that high-tech talk that we talk about and really just boiling it down to its most basic its most uh, core principles and seeing why it's an important thing that you actually need to be talking about so i don't like to be talking about buzzwords on this uh, podcast that's not why we're here we don't we we talk about what things are real and so that's why i i think that zero trust is an important aspect to talk about now it's certainly um top the charts in terms of oh, yeah. buzzwords in 2021 well, and, and 22. And so let's, we're going to jump in a little bit into, you know, why it's not a buzzword and go into it. But I, I want to throw this out to you, Alistair. What, so is there an alternative? So is there a way to build a system for an organization that could still theoretically operate where everything goes through the check? this choke point because i think we we do see this in very limited use cases like scada networks for uh power companies so back-end control networks for power companies i'm sure that the defense forces in every country have back-end networks but i think from a business they need to understand that there's a massive cost associated with trying to do that and part of that cost is a lack of access to services because mm. to do that, to your point, everything that people do on that network has to then be brought in internally into the network. Mm. So no Office 365, very limited email, no access to, you know, you know, music servers or video servers or or crunching through numbers up in the cloud. It, it becomes a very expensive endeavor to build out all of that infrastructure to be able to accommodate doing all of their work internally without taking leveraged advantage of those 
SaaS that's that's exactly right you know as the world moves forward with with internet and SaaS based technologies the harder it is to actually make a reality where you're shutting all of that out and 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 yes you know if you've had if you your organization has any exposure to working with organizations in like defense contracts or so forth you'll see that they still have rules that um, apply that way. I mean, you can't bring tele- mobile mobile phones into oh, yeah. the workspace. Yeah, yeah, that sort of. So it's it is militant and militant for good reason, right? That sort of level of defense is there for a reason. Yeah. But the cost organizationally to to have those levels of protection, it is possible. But the cost is extremely high. You have to have people physically physically policing that. And you yep. also have to have a, a security team constantly assessing what traffic is going through what network. So really almost like having a tap, watching the ones and zeros yep. uh, yeah. through yeah. your network at all times. So it's not just a case of having a firewall put in place and, and blocking port X, Y, and Z. And it's not just the case of then adding an IPS and IDS on top of that. It's actually going to the next level and going right from the human perspective, right? Okay. The IDS hasn't flagged this but is that is that legit should we yep. be having our own blacklists and whitelists in there that sort of stuff so it, excluding it, it, the mains and so forth and it, it it your organization is going to slow down because doing new things or doing things within the organization becomes exceptionally hampered scaling out what you're doing becomes very difficult and we had a really good episode on technical debt when you bring everything in-house and don't leverage SaaS and cloud services, you are making a technical debt decision in such a way that you're going to have to plan for that, and it's going to be very costly. So so all of that leads to the fact that, well, we don't want to do all that. How can we protect ourselves and not build this, you know, you know med- medieval castle choke point? bring everything inside the castle, try and do it. And and that's when we get to this idea of zero trust. Mm, mm. Yeah. And I think the thing about adopting a zero trust model is that it's not something that you're going to be able to do overnight. Now, you know, the security companies out there, a lot of them, the ones that sell you firewalls, the ones that sell you traditional security products, they're going to tell you that just do the old castle moat thing and you'll be fine. They're, they're, they're still evolving. They're those ones because they're making so much money from their their core security products. A lot of them, you know, if you look at the Gartner, uh, you know, quadrant, you'll find there's a lot of sort of not laggards, but pe- people, companies in the middle there that are still pushing their old way of doing things. So that that is a difficult aspect. You need to find people uh, or organizations at the front end, the the you know the the leading end of the Gartner quadrant that are really thinking about zero trust now. So first of all, finding a reputable, trusted partner, maybe consultants as well, and and also the right products. But then it, then it comes internal, right? So you can do all of that great stuff with with partners and and uh, and vendors and so forth. But realistically. It's a cultural shift, not just a technology shift. So yeah. you're going to have to retrain. If you've got security people inside your organizations or even just your IT team, those people are going to have to be retrained on a zero trust methodology first. And so that is a cultural um, change. And then by proxy, 
Um, because this affects everyone inside your organization, it doesn't just affect the IT people, it affects the way that you think about, you know, your email, phishing, right? Phishing is the obvious example, right? You get an email, it looks like it's legit, it comes from your boss, it says, hey, can you click on this link and go do whatever it is? And it says, no, 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 it says, hey, can you go down to the chip, to the, the dairy and pick me up, you know, $2,000 worth of Prezi cards, and yeah. then it emailed me through the serial numbers off the back of them because I'm going to give them out to all the employees. And then you find out later it didn't come from your boss. That's it. Yeah. So, so that is, that is the, that is what's happening. So you, you can't just leave it to your IT team. You, you have to have your whole organization start to re refocus their understanding on IT security. So if you as an organization are not having regular training and, and by regular I mean a minimum quarterly on how to protect your organization from security threats then you are missing something you really really need to start thinking about the damage that could be done to your organization not just financially reputationally and and obviously from from a government policy perspective as well so it's it, it's a real it's a it's a completely different world that we're operating in now to one that we were in just even 10 years ago, or maybe even five years ago. So there is a lot more at stake. So how do you adopt the security trust model, a zero trust model, I think is, is kind of where you're getting to there, Sean. So first of all, it may appear obvious or, or not, but assume that all activity on all of the networks in and out of your uh, corporate network is untrusted until and this is the important part this is the, the sort of real clencher for zero trust until so like zero trust i guess if you just take it by the name zero trust you just don't trust anything it's not not entirely true that's not the whole picture of the, the term zero trust it's you trust nothing until the user and the device have been authenticated and authorized for that segment of the network so then so and let's go let's go one step higher because the networking people will get that completely and it's not trusted to access that service that file or that piece of data until they have been validated the person the device and that they have authority to access it that's absolutely right. Perfect. That's really, really good. So yeah, so we're, 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 we're not just talking about, you know, simple permissions here. If you think about the premise behind data leakage, right, you could have access to a network. And, you know, by, by intentionally, if you're a bad actor on your corporate network, which is still less of the case, or, or unintentionally, you know, you might get fished or something might happen having that granular access to the network by adopting a zero trust model will or, or tries to make sure that data loss or data leakage is let, set at a level minimum. And that's because it goes, right, should Bob in development have access to the HR accounts? You know, who should, should, um, should that person be able to see salary level data and really classify the, the data within an organization? That sort of level of trust and, and, and granularity is really important. Obviously, making that, that sort of level of trust and granularity is not something that you can do overnight. It's not right. something that you can just adopt 
and go, hey, we, we're zero trust now. It's something that will take some time. That culture shift and that also that the technology that needs to be in place, that is not something that's going to just happen within you know a month or oh, two. Yeah. Stick a product in and you got it. It's not going to happen. So, well, so and, the, and the technical debt, right? So if you have if you have a you know legacy technical debt that you haven't dealt with yet oftentimes that technology won't accommodate you going to a zero trust model so if if the technology that you're using has services on it that you can't go to a granular level of control then you know to fully adopt a zero trust model you're going to have to look at upgrading that product absolutely yeah so um Another th aspect as well is just looking, talking about the, the the legacy technology. The legacy technology in your in your network might still be quite acceptable. It's just that you might not be using it to its fullest extent. So you could be looking at your network administration, and this is an area that, again, from you know, Sean, your background and and to a slightly lesser extent, my background, we were both network admins. You know, working on. Cisco gear and stuff like that back in the day you know all of these devices did things like AAA we also did right, things like right. uh, radius but we also did things like segmentation so this that's not new there's nothing new in there but if you look at a lot of corporate networks you might find that the segmentation is quite lightweight it really yes. is like you know wide open you have one VLAN for example um, which kind of does all of your corporate office space so literally, there's no segmentation, say HR, finance, the developer staff, and other staff. They're all in one big VLAN, right? That's, if you think about a zero trust model, having it better segmented to say, well, HR, is there any reason that they really need to be able to talk directly on the same kind of piece of wire, as it were, to to the developers? Does, does HR need to physically talk to them over that same, or... Can they go through an out an outway, you know, a gateway, and then into that network if if they really genuinely have to have some sort of interaction with their network? So it's not that that part itself is not new, but I think it's worthwhile bringing that up that having your segmentation done a bit more granularly, thoughtfully. Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that 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 itself, just by doing that, will reduce the blast radius on your network. So if you have something which happens in the developer network, say, you know, somebody clicks on a bad link or something like that, and it, you know, blows up and destroys the whole developer network, at least it's not going to go over to HR or accounts or management networks because you have put in that VP at uh, that VLAN. And of course, the same sort of thing happens in the cloud now as well. We have VPCs, virtual private clouds. So you can segment off different technology stacks, different applications, whatever it might be, into separate VPCs. And that's quite normal within the cloud. I mean, when AWS, for example, started out, um, it wasn't the default to have VPCs. But I think these days, it's quite quite uh, standard that you know you set everything up and you put them in separate VPCs. So yeah, you know, Amazon... Remember we, we went through a time where different business divisions would have different VPCs, but I think most organizations that are mature in their cloud adoption are now going to services level VPCs. So all of the services associated with a particular application or business service are in a, a separate v VPC. So you might have the accounting team might have a VPC for monthly accounts and the yearly accounts might be 
significantly more application heavy and they might have a completely different VPC for yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. So so it is quite prevalent within the, the cloud world, especially in the last sort of, I would say, close to 10 years, but definitely in the last five years for applications and cloud native technologies to be set up in separate VPCs. It is the default. It's not the, you know, oh, we need to set up a VPC afterthought. It's a, a you know, by default, you get a new VPC for every new thing that you set up in the cloud. So that's kind of baked in and that's the same with Azure and for GCP as well. So, so that's a good thing, I guess. On to another aspect, adopt data leakage protection, inventory and auditing software that ideally integrates or is part of your seam. So basically that, that just talks to that whole data leakage that I was talking about a moment ago, right? But to, to do proper data leakage protection, if you do not have an inventory of your network, then it's gonna be really, really difficult to know if you've, if you've leaked data, if you've lost data, where has it gone from? What devices did it go from? Okay, or if you've got a host name of Bob Computer 123, that isn't really going to help you. You need a proper inventory and an audit of what those things are. They need to be monitored continually and sent back to your um, security incident event monitor, right? So all of that information needs to flow in there. And it needs to do it automatically. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. It, the, the automation aspect of that is very important because you know, doing a manual inventory in the, this is like some security firms will still recommend that you go off and do a manual inventory of all of your assets. The reality of doing that these days is almost futile because we have not only our own assets in, in physical space, like our laptops and our mobile phones and all the rest, but how many rogue devices do you think you've got on your wireless network, for example, that alone is very difficult, but then extend it out into the cloud, right? Think about the, the, the pipeline or the, um, the, the trail of information that goes on and on and on outside of your applications. So the SaaS nature of things that we have today, think about, or even Office 365, just take Office 365, something that you know, a lot of organizations have as a trusted application within their, their organization today. Well, first of all, you know, your organization authenticates via probably Active Directory. So they... Their, your usernames are uniquely tied into the cloud via Azure AD, and they are all authenticated into Office 365 via that method. And then Office 365 itself, they have other trusted partners, Microsoft have trusted partners, that they, yeah. the, the information, like I was talking about that grammar and spell checker example, those, I mean, that that's a hypothetical, but it doesn't matter. Realistically, there is a vendor chain of SaaS products. It's not just going to Microsoft.com. It's going to a whole bunch of other domains and services across the internet, or it's using other services on their network. Regardless, there is information spilling out all over the place. So auditing these things by hand is pretty much impossible. So that's yeah. why automation is so key to as part of that, that uh, process. So yeah, definitely. On top of that, think about your SOC, um, your, your security operations center. These people within this team, if they're going to get this massive host of alerts coming through about, oh, this, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. Every time, you know, the, the, the logs from particular servers come through, they're going to see a lot of these either false positives 
or sort of semi-true alerts, which are actually fairly benign. So you need to have a method of reducing what I would call alert burnout. So actually giving things that matter, that come to that rise to the top of the alerts for your socks to actually deal with. So this is this is something I, I, I want to touch on a little bit because it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Being able to to identify this, you know. So back in the day, I worked on a a open source product project called Base. Give a shout out to Kevin Johnson there. And the idea of Base was to take those alerts and look for a root cause analysis from a security perspective, and to identify so that the alert going to the sock was the most likely root cause. So, so it reduced it. You didn't have to go through all the log entries, all the alerts, all the alarms to, to be able to identify it. Today, what's happening with a lot of organizations is, is that rather than trying to adopt automated technologies to be able to do this, what they're doing is they're pre-filtering all of the alerts going into their seam or their sock so that they're only getting the alerts that they have already identified things they need to do with. Now, problem with that is, is they only ever see the things that they already know about. And security is all about the things you don't know about. So all of those log events that they have no idea what they are, or what the event was, never make it into the soccer scene. There's no way to report on it. You don't, in fact, there's no even way to go backwards and see what happened after you realize something bad has happened. It really has to be within the sock and seam, an automated way to be able to chase that root cause in a way that gives the root cause alert, or at least an identification of where the root cause alert most likely came from to the the sock operators, rather than trying to pre-filter the alerts coming to the seam. That is, yeah, that is a fantastic real world example. And, and, and that is very true. So, I mean, like there's a lot of atrophying and go and going on it's very difficult to strike that balance but i think it is a necessary to strike that balance and it's something that you know a CISO should be very mindful of so your CISO really if you're a good CISO you should be talking to your security operations center your team there and saying hey how are you viewing your logs what are you discarding what are you what are your false positives how many false positives have you got are you burning out on all of these logs and how can we sort that what what technologies can we adopt to actually make sure that we're actually zeroing in on what what real potential threats that there are on our network there's whenever you start up a new SOC solution or SOC CM solution you're going to have a lot of red lights right that's, oh yeah that's a given right and taking that down to a, a, a day where, you know, the security person's nirvana, where you see all green lights is almost never going to happen. But to have, you know, a few few green lights, a few amber lights, and just maybe one or two red lights, that's where you want to be. But in order to do that, you've got to have a very, very good way of basically understanding what false positives are and really identifying them properly. And if you're struggling, like, uh, we, uh, look, Alistair and I are aware of this in, in acutely in New Zealand, but it's happening in uh, all across the world, Asia, Europe, the Americas. There is a shortage of security operators because the reality is, is that in the old days, you would just say, well, we'll just hire more security operators to be able to cover off all the alerts and chase all of them out. It's not happening. I think we 
we did an episode on AI ops and we touched a little bit on AI SecOps. We might do a, a, a podcast episode if somebody's interested. And if somebody mm -hmm. out there is an expert in it would like to come along and talk about AI SecOps and what it is, uh, we'd love to have you on. But yeah, we, I think yeah. we need to do a deep dive because security operations is even worse off than regular IT operations. I mean, regular IT operations, you can find people to, that want to go into that. There are so few people that actually know security and can do security operations that without these tools to automate some of the, it's just, you're never going to catch up with everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the fact is that you could be looking for needles and haystacks a lot of the time, really, really difficult world. So yeah, that, that, that would be a great um, opportunity. I think if you do, if you do have AI SecOps experience and understand automation of those particular of security aspects, then we'd love to hear from you. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm going to leave this particular aspect on, but just as a reminder, I think overall, the most important thing is again, just reiterate the fact of training all your staff about adopting that culture of zero trust. You have to give briefings where you probably provide phishing, examples of phishing attacks, large-scale data breaches, and so forth. In my previous company, I there's there's a whole bunch of companies out there right now that are doing sort of animated videos and sort of some of them have got like Hollywood actors and stuff like that. So little videos they get sent to you via email, and they're just sort of like five-minute training videos to, to sort of tell you, hey, this is what security is. So it's actually in fun and engaging for, you know, people who are doing real jobs and not not geeks. And so so that's pretty cool. But on top of that, what they also do as well is they have um, little gotchas. So they'll send phishing attacks, fake phishing attacks, pretending to be from reputable brands in your country that you know, you know, so and it's quite common for people to click on links from banks and so forth. So they'll pretend to be a bank that you might bank with. You press on the link and then it goes, ha, sorry, you failed this particular test, but thank God it wasn't a real a real phishing attack. It was just us trying to see who needs more training. And that goes back to the, the, the CISO or the organization to say, hey, these people have failed the phishing attack attack test by the way you might want to train them up a bit more so those things are i would say you know if you're if you're taking security seriously having these routine uh, training sessions and tests almost is a really uh, really valuable thing to do and will really reduce your risks of exposure so definitely give them a consideration as well but sean there are a whole so we've really kind of talked about the theory uh, and the reasons why that you would want to go into adopting a zero trust level of security and adopting that culture. But maybe we could dive just a little bit into the areas of technology that exist around zero trust. And uh, so you've got a few areas that you 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 wanted to discuss today. Well, yeah, I think I, I, well, yeah, so we, we, we started diving down into a couple of these and, and what it is is that Again, this podcast is about demystifying both for the business side, but also for the technology side to be able to talk to the business, right? So if the business has been listening to us up till now and, and they feel like that they can go and talk with the technology teams about what Zero Trust is and what they're aiming for, it'd be good, you know, oftentimes they, they go in and they go, yeah, we, we need to be doing Zero Trust. And that means we need to have VPCs. And the technology team says, well, we have VPCs. And, and what's ultimately happened is, is that because the business is asking for a zero trust implementation, or they want to know they're moving towards a zero trust 
stance or footing within the organization. But what they've said to the technology teams is, yeah, VPCs, the technology teams don't understand what they're asking about. So I want to take it down a, a level so that the business can understand what we're talking about with some of these technologies, but also, so those of you that are technology people can better understand what the business is expecting to hear and what the business is expecting or they need to understand about the things you're doing. So we're, we're going to touch on a couple different technologies real quick. I, I don't expect to go, this is not a deep technical technical episode. I just want to touch on them and, and talk about some of the use cases and things they solve. The first of those is micro-segmentation. Now, we've been talking about, we've, in fact, Alistair, in this podcast and I have talked about what micro-segmentation might look like. But when we, were, when we mentioned it, we talked about creating gateways between things. In a perfect world, every device attached to a network would have its own gateway and would be security audited every time it talked across that gateway so that nobody did anything onto the network that they weren't supposed to be doing. That's a perfect world. That's that's perfect micro-segmentation. It's almost impossible to achieve. So we begin to break things apart in micro-segmentation and we say that the user community or user computers is that that's this entire grouping. So all of the computers that are end users, the developers, the HR team, the accounting team, the salespeople, all of them sit over in this other area. And we're moving towards a model where basically all those devices are just sitting on the internet. The services they're accessing are what we're talking about segmenting off. So all of the cloud services, all the SaaS services, even any on-premise services, are segmented away from those user computers in such a way that we can control them. Within those spaces, we then segment them down as much as we can with still allowing the applications to work. So we don't have you know, the accounting software sitting on the same segment with the sales CRM software. Because if one of them gets compromised, you've compromised both of them. So yeah. segmenting it down and making making to Alistair's point the blast radius, blast radius. of the mm. yeah of the compromised system as little as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Today, and then, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say and today. Oftentimes, what we're talking about is a software-defined network because it's not. It's no longer we have a the gateway is this cable that's plugged into a firewall someplace. It's some of the applications are containers, some of the applications are virtual machines, and the network, the, the gateway for the network to the internet is oftentimes a completely software controlled gateway that sits in the cloud. So you can actually, especially with containerization, you can actually shrink that micro segmentation down to, well, this container is allowed to talk to these three other containers. But if it wants to talk to any other containers, it has to go through a gateway. And that's a software-defined network. So we can use SDN gateways, the gateways associated with software-defined networks, to drill all the way down to a single application on a server or with a service within a server or a container. And we can limit the traffic to and from that service or application all the way down to, you know, this service does DNS, this service hosts the website, this 
is a call to a database service and we can segment it all the way down and that so when we talk about micro segmentation and, and where sdn is at that's what we're talking about so we've kind of talked about what sdn's bias and what micro segmentation's bias but you're going to hear the term sd wan and especially around security and segmentation sd wan becomes really important so we talked about those user computers, all of the, the people that do work in your business and how they connect into those backend services. So there are two main ways that we can do this. The first way is, is that we can just open up the services to the internet. But as we said, if we segment it down and say, hey, we don't want our accounting software to be internet accessible, as an example. So somehow we have to limit Who's allowed to access that? Now, we could build a VPN. We could run a dedicated a telephone circuit to it, but it's very costly and doesn't scale very well. Or we could use software-defined wide area networks to build a backend security structure that allows only designated devices that are on the internet connected to the internet to be able to access those services across that micro segmentation. So SD-WAN allows you to limit, and again, zero trust is about limiting access, limiting access to authenticated, validated, verified devices and people. And so SD-WAN becomes a, a key technology component in being able to do that. We touched on containerization. The interesting thing is, is that we're now moving within the services and especially around containers to this idea. And, and I remember in the early 2000s, the first time I heard about her heuristics. And if you think back, Alistair, there was a Cisco had a product in the early 2000s that they had a Windows 95 machine that they put up on the internet with this heuristic based virus software on it. And it had no patches on it. And they had an open bounty for any hackers to hack into this Windows 95 box. And I believe it ran for two years without anybody breaking into it. So the way, so if you hear the term heuristics and you're talking with your, your virus software people or you're talking with your security firewall people and they're talking about heuristics, heuristics basically is this machine does these things and five days from now, it does something that it's never done before. Yeah. So it's like a fingerprint almost, isn't it? It's like yes. A, like yes. This is the fingerprint of what it's typical to look like. Yes. If that fingerprint has changed, then there's a potential that it's that's been compromised Do, in some way. Yeah. It's doing something it shouldn't be. The, traditionally, the ones that we saw were um, suddenly your accounting server on-premise began hosting a website. It's never hosted a website before. Suddenly it's hosting a website. That's generally a bad thing. Heuristics are not perfect, especially if you have something that runs quarterly or once a year. A heuristic fingerprint that's been done on day-to-day -day usages, every time that quarterly job runs, the heuristics doesn't realize that that's a legitimate thing, and so you get a false positive. So heuristics is not a magic bullet, but it becomes a part of a zero-trust environment that you're looking at it. And by the way, the Microsoft security services use heuristics to be able to identify when the functionality of things change. Cisco's uh, has matured their virus product. It's now an entire, it's an application that runs on your desktops that does heuristics-based anomaly detection on those desktops. So if suddenly 
your personal laptop begins hosting a Microsoft SQL database and just feeding data out to the internet, and it's never done that before, it kicks back and says, well, this isn't supposed to be doing this. Very good, yes. So we've talked, to, uh, most of the things we're talking about are networks and how networks to solve this, but I, I've got some bad news for you. So zero trust is not about solving everything using the network. Zero trust is about taking that authentication and that role-based access to the application and even to the data. So nowadays, when we talk about zero trust, and if you're in a modern zero trust stance, you may open up the application to the internet, but you may limit who can access what data on the application down to only authenticated and authorized people. So you may want to say, yeah, this one client of mine can look at their invoice and the state of the shipment of their order to them, but they can't query it for their neighbor's business. And that's not done at the network level. It's not, it may not even be done at the application level. It may actually be done at the data level. So now we're looking at data cl cloud data services where we're actually doing authentication at a, an individual piece of data or an independent, independent, ind individual. Ooh, that's a hard word for an American to say individual, individual p a file or piece of information so that the service allows access to it. But as soon as you try and access that file or that piece of data, it authorizes you to do it. And if you don't have, if you don't have authorization, you can't do it. So again, back to that idea of zero trust that Alistair was talking about. We now, you're untrusted until you've verified both your device and you that you're allowed to access the data, the application, the service, and the computer. Yep, that's that is zero trust. It's quite yes. a it's quite quite the, the hefty topic. It's not something that can be adapted. Sorry, adopted in 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 one little day. It's uh, it's definitely something that will take some considerable thought for your organization. And it's not something that can be done with just one simple tool or product. It's no. a, it's a really it's a, a multidisciplined thing which spans different network technologies and different application technologies as well. Yes. So. So definitely, hopefully what, what we've done in this episode is given you a good bit of food for thought about the what the concept of zero trust is, why it is actually really, really relevant today, and why if your organization is still just using usernames, passwords, maybe a little bit of SSO, and and then sticking a firewall at the edge of your network and, and saying that's that job's done, that you're, you're, what I would say is probably your organization is at risk at, or at significant risk of having some sort of compromise in the very near future. And so you should be considering adopting a zero trust model. So that's that's hopefully what the messages of today's podcast is trying to get across the, the different profiles of risk to your organization and why zero trust is the appropriate method to consider when looking at securing your network in the near future. And and for the business side, if we're looking at business cases and the cost to adopt it, we, we don't want to scare you. You can iterate your way into this. This is not a, oh, you have to do everything on day one or you can't do anything. If you have a security roadmap to get 
to begin the process of heading towards zero trust, you can take advantage of a lot of the technologies and capabilities to get better and better and better and and their value at every step of the path. So my recommendation would be if your CISO is interested that you 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 have professional services companies that you work with, you have consultants, it's worth having a discussion with them about building a roadmap of how you might get to zero trust because you're going to need it in the coming years. Indeed. All right. Well, I hope you have enjoyed our podcast for today. If you have any feedback, of course, we would love to hear from you as usual. And if you've got any ideas for future podcasts, again, please do let us know. And uh, yeah. So how do we get in touch with yourself there, Sean? Well, so it's interesting, Alistair, you and I were talking about this the other day and we were putting together that list of, of contacts. And I suddenly realized that. So if you if you search for Sean G. Muller, so S-E-A-N-G-M-U-L-L-E-R, on pretty much any of, I mean, even Discord and Clubhouse came up when we were having the discussion. But um, yes, I know. But you can find me on the Instagrams, the Twitters, the Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can just email me at sean.muller at serbian.com. Yeah. Yeah. Even Discord. And that would be interesting to have real time chats with oh, you. Yeah. So Sean, Sean G. Muller, hash 1887. Um, yeah, so, I, I'm assuming you weren't born in 1887. I mean, I, I know whether we're getting on a bit, I'm old. There, but really, yes, but you know, that, that's taking it back to abacus days. You know, that's um, well, you know, this is one of those things that we've so I'm going to put this out here because Alistair and I have talked about doing this and we haven't done it. So maybe if you're listening to this and it sounds like something you'd be interested in, we might do a, a Discord or a Clubhouse channel, test it out, see if people mm -hmm. would like to get on and talk with us. Because th that allows one of the things that Alistair and I miss is that two-way conversation. We love doing these podcasts, mm. but we also like talking with people and getting feedback while we're doing it. So maybe if if the our listeners would be interested in in a clubhouse channel, we could establish a clubhouse channel and try it once to see if it it makes sense. So yeah. let us know. Yeah, I mean, you can you can probably tell when you listen to the podcast as well that it's fairly free form. Like we yeah. don't we don't edit. Uh, much or any of the content that we do we we kind of just riff a lot of the stuff off so it's very conversational in nature in any case so it really would i think it would always add to the conversation to have oh, people yeah. along yeah. to the podcast so yeah it would definitely be definitely be great if you want to get in touch with myself as well i i am not as prevalent on the internet as sean but uh, you can oh, get me on always near and dear to my heart sean uh, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash alistair j ross uh, that's a l i s t a-I-R-J Ross, R-O-S-S. And you can email me, alistair.ross at servian.com. And you can also check check me out on my YouTube channel. I do something completely different on YouTube. I kind of mainly play around with retro computers. So like the people who play with um, old cars and fix them up and make them all work and stuff like that. Well, I do the same, but for retro hardware and retro software. And well, there's a few IT security stuff things on there as well but the mainstay of it is you know old computer software old computer games and old computer hardware so you can check me out at youtube.com forward slash al's geek lab so that's that's it for today's podcast that's number 11 in the can i hope you've enjoyed it and uh, we'll speak to you again really soon in in episode 12 until then take care and be excellent to each other <laughs>